Welcome to another episode of the Lifestyle Edit Podcast. I am so excited to share today's episode with you. I feel like I say this every week, but really this week I am because this week's episode is less of a kind of traditional interview format and think of it more as a masterclass because I am speaking to Elaine Pofeld. Elaine is phenomenal. If you are not familiar with her work, she has written about entrepreneurship for publications such as Crane's New York Business, Fortune, Money, Inc., CNBC. She was a former senior editor of Fortune Small Business Magazine. The list truly goes on. Um, I've I think I've devoured literally everything that she's she's written on entrepreneurship because she just offers so much free value and insight in in her articles. And she now actually has a book that's just come out. It's called The Multi The Million Dollar One Person Business which really brings together some of the insights she's gleaned over the last, you know, decade um writing about entrepreneurship and you know all of these interviews that she's done with successful female founders but she's in this book she's really narrowing in on these one person businesses that have been able to break the million dollar mark so the book really outlines the pathway that you can use to join this entrepreneurial movement bringing together advice from hundreds of business owners who've done it She explains how to identify, launch, grow, and reinvent a business, showing how a single individual can generate one million in revenue, something that was only accessible to larger companies in the past. So from their experiences, you'll learn how to come up with the right business idea, how to develop concrete strategies you can use to turn your vision into reality, and how to scale your revenue and profits once they start rolling in. So Elaine is a firm believer that the vast majority of self-employed people have barely begun to unlock their potential in making the most of their businesses. So those are just some of the themes that come up in today's conversation. So like I said, this is more of a masterclass. So if you're thinking about starting a business or really want advice about how to scale an existing business, this episode is for you. Elaine, welcome to the Lifestyle Edit podcast. Thank you so much, Naomi. It's great to be here. I am so excited to have you on the show. I devoured your book in a morning and I think I've pretty much read everything you've written out there because I've just learned so much from you. So I'm so pleased that you're going to be able to share a lot of this wisdom to everybody today on the show. Well, I am so excited to be here. I'm really honored to have a chance to talk about the book and entrepreneurship with your audience. And I am so excited that you've read my work. Yes, yes. So just to give people a little bit of context who are unfamiliar with your work, can you just talk me through your professional background and how you've got to where you are today? Sure, Naomi. I'm a journalist who specializes in writing about entrepreneurship and careers. Uh, I'm most recently the author of a book that Random House is publishing on January 2nd called The Million Dollar One Person Business, which looks at businesses that have scaled to one million U.S. dollars in revenue or more without adding employees and and how they've done it. Um, In in my journalism work, I was a senior editor at Fortune Small Business Magazine for quite a while. And after I went freelance, I began contributing to a number of magazines about entrepreneurship, um, such as Inc. Magazine, 
um, Money Magazine, uh, their small business coverage, CNBC, Forbes. Some of this also appears online. Um, and I, I write for a number of other publications, but my, my specialty is entrepreneurship. Um, at Forbes, I write a lot about the one-person business, um, which I really I have a, um, a sweet spot for. I really um, enjoy writing about micro-businesses because I think it's the most exciting growth area in the economy. Definitely. And we're going to get into a lot of that in today's conversation. But before we go into all things entrepreneurship, I'd love to start by talking about some of the barriers that women are facing right now in starting a business in the first place. So when discussions of women's career take place, they usually focus on, you know, choosing between corporate work or family or finding some happy medium in between. But there's little mention of entrepreneurship. It's increasingly happening but it's still slow. Why is that? That's a really great question, Naomi. I wonder about this all the time. I think in general, there are many people that are not exposed to entrepreneurship as a career option, whether they are men or women. There are people, for instance, if your parents work in government or they work in corporate jobs, you may not actually know an entrepreneur and you may not really think of the people that run small businesses in your community as, as entrepreneurs. They're just part of your community. Very true. So I, I, I think a lot of people just don't think of it because it's not posed to them as, as a career option. I think schools, in at least in the U.S., I'm not familiar with what schools are doing all over the world, but in here they tend to train people for corporate work or some type of traditional job. That's the idea that you'll get out and be employable someday. They don't really, at an early age, teach young people to think about creating their own job or creating their own company. And it, it might just be the limited experience of people who tend to teach who have government jobs. Um, although I do find that um, I've seen at the middle school and higher level, it's being introduced a lot more. It's just not seen as being something as routine as, as traditional jobs are. But I feel that's a very dated approach because increasingly people are working independently and they're kind of being thrust into it without much preparation. And the schools could play a great role in preparing people. Definitely, because even when women in an entrepreneurship is kind of celebrated and discussed, it's very much focusing on these superstar entrepreneurs, you know, your Sarah Blakely's of this world. I think for a lot of people, they don't even realize that there's this opportunity to run these kind of smaller, mid-sized operations. I, I think you're absolutely right about that, Naomi. It, I think in general, whether we're talking about men or women, we always tend to celebrate the outliers, the, you know, the next um, Facebook, the, the entrepreneur who created it, the Elon Musks, and there are so many great women entrepreneurs. But it's very intimidating for people because most of us are, are not going to create a business of that scale and may not desire to. I think um, there are a lot of people who are looking for a balance between their personal life and their work life. And they're very ambitious in terms of the work that they want to do. But creating jobs may not be their personal goal. They may want to contribute to society. It's not that they're selfish, but just being a job creator isn't their goal. Um, and I think we in the media tend not to write about those people, but I think they're out there. There are millions of people like that that are building great little businesses and doing quite well with it. 
Um, and that, that was actually why I wrote the book. I came across statistics showing that in the U.S. there were more than, well, at the time the number was a little bit lower, but it's grown currently as of 2015. There were more than 34,000 businesses where non-employer firms were bringing in $1 million to about $2.5 million in revenue in U.S. dollars. Wow. And that's a lot for that's a freelance a business. And I, <laughs> it is a lot. And I got curious about what they were doing because I thought other people can learn from this and build more sustainable businesses if we can understand what what they are doing. And I, I, I like to celebrate them because I think people don't understand that this is a possibility um, and just back to another point you made that I think is really important. One of the things that it has been very disappointing to me just in covering careers for a long time is how how little corporate America has changed in terms of enabling people to live a balanced family life and a balanced work life. They say that they want to, but there's still a career penalty for people who, who take advantage of flexible work options, whether men or women, but it just seems that in many families, women bear more of the responsibility for um, raising the children and household things. It, you know, it depends on the family, but it, it just becomes very stressful for women to hold down some of those jobs and they do it. I see Herculean efforts, but it really takes a toll and I think there are a lot of women who are literally planning every second of their lives down to the minute in order to maintain those jobs and be a good mother. And they're very, very stressed. And I think having your own business where you apply that same level of energy, skill, intellect, et cetera, everything you bring to your career to a business gives you so many more options because you, you can control your schedule and it doesn't matter if you get up at five in the morning and work for two hours and then take two hours off to spend time with your children. You don't have to explain it to anybody and no one's penalizing you. As long as you deliver the work to your clients and they're happy with it, then you've got a great little gig there. Exactly. You know? and, it's, and it's what a lot of people would like. The challenge is people don't know how to do it because of what you said. They, they, they really aren't exposed to it. And no one really offers this type of training. I will also say that entrepreneurship education had a stigma to it a while back. And I know um, from running business school rankings in the past, um, some of the business schools used to feel that only educating people to go into corporate executive positions was worthwhile. And entrepreneurship education was almost like a stepchild. It was sort of a lesser <laughs> form of business. Now, that has changed a lot, especially in the digital era. But it wasn't that long ago. I'm talking about 15 years ago. So there, even if somebody went to business school and wanted to become a great entrepreneur, they might find that there were not many course offerings and it was looked down upon a little bit. And, and maybe that was because, again, you're talking about schools, um, people who are parents often see schools as a route to um, creating employable children. And if you've spent <laughs> thousands of dollars on tuition, maybe it's not a palatable message that your child will then go out and create their own job. Maybe you want to know that they can pay back the student loans, it, yes. which is a reasonable assumption. But, but it also winds up, I think, 
leading to a situation where there's less entrepreneurship education than there really should be for today's economy. And it is changing a great deal. We see really innovative programs at the college and graduate school level now that just keep evolving. But but not everybody goes to those programs. That's the other issue. It's it's hard to get the education outside of what does exist in the schools. Definitely. And I think the switch really happened for me once I actually made the transition. Very quickly, I could see that, yes, all of those hours that I was putting into my former life, now that I'm putting it into my business, I can see that, you know, rapidly affecting my bottom line. And, you know, there is that fear. And I see it with a lot of my clients who have ideas for business, but they're like, oh, you know, I spent so much money on my education. Is it all going to go to waste all of this time? But actually... All of that expertise you're now funneling into something that's your own. Like I feel more financial freedom and empowerment than I ever have because I know that my bottom line is dependent on me. And if I'm going to bank on anybody, I'm going to bank on me. There's nobody that can lay me off, you know, tomorrow. Um, you know, it's it's down to me. And there's something really empowering in that. That is a fantastic realization, and I wish more women had the opportunity to have that experience because. What I think a lot of them would find is after an initial ramp up period, they will make even more than they made in their old job. They're going to realize how sorely underpaid they were and realize what their value is to their customers. And that that's a very powerful thing to know about yourself. Even if you're working part time to know that you can make X amount working super efficiently part time is very, very empowering. A lot of a lot of traditional employees have no idea what their actual value is to the company. And so they're in a terrible position to negotiate salary. So they go for years and years underpaid, just glad to have the security of a job without realizing if they were in their own business, they could be making three times more by applying the same amount of effort, probably have a healthier lifestyle because they're not commuting. Maybe they have time for exercise or to make healthier food or for <laughs> friendships or things that you tend to miss out on when you have a grueling corporate gig. Oh my God, it would be definitely. so revolutionary. You know, it, it, I have to say that entrepreneurship is not for everyone. There is an element of risk to it. So there are people I know that have gone into a business and they're so accustomed to having that paycheck come every two weeks that they can never really adjust. They don't want to adjust their financial life to do the things you need to do to build a sustainable business. And one of them is to build a cash cushion. You can't spend everything that you make because a client might pay you late or something might go wrong in your business and you have to invest in it at that moment unplanned and if you if you're not willing to change your spending habits a little bit to build that wall against insecurity you'll never be happy and it, and it's not just a one person decision in many families for instance if you are willing to but the rest of your family isn't then it's going to be very hard to build a secure business so it, it, there's a lot to consider but I think for a lot of people, they would be really surprised at what they could do in a one-person business. They would be so much more confident in themselves if they applied the equivalent amount of effort that they're putting into everything that goes into their job yes. and invested it in themselves. One other point I want to make related to what you said, which a couple of entrepreneurs have pointed out to me, Ben and Camille Arneberg are a couple that I wrote about in the book. 
and they run an Amazon store that sells home decor items. They lo- they love to entertain, and they invested about five thousand dollars initially in the business and they looked at it almost as money that they might have invested in a college course. They figured there was so much education they would get out of it that even if it didn't result in them making money, they would still have learned a lot of valuable lessons. So I think you have to look at a business that way too, that some of what you put into it isn't going to bring a direct return, but you might learn more than you would in a grad school course that costs a lot more than that. That (laughs) And apply it to something later. You know, maybe you learn a lesson this year in your business that it doesn't really click for you until next year and you apply it then. You never really know when these things will be valuable to you. And and I think nothing is ever wasted in business. Completely. And even if your business were not to succeed, in many cases, you can even leapfrog a few positions because you have that in real life entrepreneurship experience that you could always transfer to another role that it's so true ben and camille before they started this business they're very athletic and they like running and they had started a business selling compression sleeves it's a, a running accessory and it didn't do that well so they pivoted into this other type of business and took some of what they had learned and applied it to being successful in the new one so if if you start small and don't over invest in an idea then you can quickly regroup and try something else. Or you may decide, um, you know, for instance, maybe um, you start your own marketing or social media agency. You do it for a while, but for whatever reason, you don't want to keep doing it. You could easily get another job and bring what you learned to that job, work in that job for a while, and then when you're ready to go back out on your own, keep on applying what you're learning to your own business. So it's it's not an either or type of thing. I think I think it's possible to go in and out of traditional jobs too, depending on what your needs are at the moment. I know um, every country is different with regard to healthcare. The US, it's a big mess. So it's a big issue. It, it's, it's, it's very, very expensive to buy your own healthcare. And it's, it's the equivalent, depending on the state that you live in. In my state, it's the equivalent of an additional mortgage. It's that wow. expensive just for the premiums, not counting out of pocket. It's crushing. It's, it's so much that a lot of Americans can never afford it. We have something um, called the Affordable Care Act that makes it more affordable. But even under that law, it's still priced out of reach for a lot of people. Or they have to buy plans that don't cover very much. So it's challenging. And there are times when, because of that, some people may feel I need to go into a traditional job to get the health benefits. I don't criticize anybody for making a decision that's best for themselves economically. You have to survive. And and then maybe, you know, when you have lower financial demands or lower health care demands, you could go back out again into your own business. So it's very um, fluid. And I think that's one thing we should all take advantage of. Absolutely. And that's actually a great riff to my next question was, what are some of the things that you that people should think about and consider in calculating how much investment they can risk in bootstrapping their business in the beginning? You have to really look at your overhead. Um, I think one of the reasons we see so many very young people starting a business is they don't have dependents. And they may not be married yet. And so they they don't have to worry about the effect that they're starting a business will have financially on other people. That said, there are a lot of people 
that I have written about over the years and in the book who have spouses, partners, um, children, a lot of responsibility, mortgages, <laughs> etc. And they've managed to do it. But the, the ones who are successful are, even if they're not financially oriented, people will get a handle on what, what their overhead really is, how much they really need to keep in reserves. And can they actually come up with that money? So sometimes what happens is they may have to work in a traditional job and start the business on the side. That's what um, one of the entrepreneurs in the book did, Laszlo Nadler, who lives in um, New Jersey, which is where I live, right outside of New York City. He had um, two children and he's married and is the main breadwinner for his family. And he was working in a big bank as a project manager. And he is somebody who loves organization and efficiency, as you can imagine, a project manager. So he designed, um, his business is called Tools for Wisdom. He designed time planners that look at the higher purpose of how we're spending our time. So it's not just a to-do list, but it's, you know, what can I do today that will move me forward towards my life's goals? He really wanted to start this right away, but he also needed to support his family. So he started it on the side. And when he reached six-figure revenue, that's when he left his job and went full-time with the business. So for some people, that's the best route. And he's still at it. Didn't have to give up on it prematurely because he ran out of money. And he was able to test the idea, too, while he had the security of a job. So I think I think you really need to look at the whole picture in your life. You need to look at health care. I know some countries, the U.K., Australia have universal health care. That is a tremendous boon. What, what I would say is think about your schedule and how you can make it work for you. So one of my friends who has older children once told me when I was having trouble juggling everything that she always got up at five in the morning and had two hours to work before her children were up. Now, if you have a new baby, you probably can't get up at five in the morning because maybe you just went to bed after feeding a baby. But but when my kids got to a certain age where they were sleeping through the night and I was having a decent night's sleep, I would do that. And I could always count on getting two hours of high quality work done. And I would try to do the most important thing I had to do that day first. So if I had an article due, I would write that article then and then do the other things in between things. So, you know, send an email or make a quick phone call, um, if you have children at home, you may need to plan for time that there's another adult available so that you can make business phone calls. That's not so easy when you have small children. So, I mean, there's so many different solutions to it. It could be that they go to preschool or you, you trade off with another parent or um, you do it during nap time and have your child on a very regular nap schedule. <laughs> But yet also have to be prepared for things to go wrong, too. I mean, things always come up for me with four children. You can imagine someone gets sick at school or something and they need to be picked up. Um, I think one thing that's really changed the last few years is you, you can be more honest about these things. Definitely. In the days before the mobile phone, everyone had up this sort of corporate um, demeanor that, you know, everything was all business. I found, you know, and now it's both moms and dads, they might be taking a call from the soccer field on their phone and it's okay to admit you have a life and that something came up and can you reschedule the call? And I would say 99% of people, 99% of people will understand, you know, and yeah, and that's important to understand because people feel so stressed. I think people can now take that stress off of themselves. 
completely. And that was one of the, the things that I loved so much about the book was that I think, you know, many of my friends and closest people in the entrepreneurship community have very much gone on that kind of VC track. And, you know, for me, as much, I'm very ambitious of everything that I have planned in my business, but I always wanted it to be a lifestyle business. I wanted my business to serve the life that I wanted to, that I want to lead. And I love that you really explore that in the book, because I think there is this stigma sometimes when you, people hear lifestyle business, it's also, this assumption automatically is that, you know, you're not ambitious or, you know, you don't want to take your business to the next level. So it was really refreshing um, for me as someone who wants to create a lifestyle business to to hear you explore that a lot in the book. I was so excited to discover that there really is a global movement around that. It It, it isn't confined to women with small children, which is, I think is the stereotype. <laughs> yeah. It's really, I, I find a lot of young men who have passionate interests, whatever it might be, a sport, bodybuilding, music, whatever, they, they want a lifestyle business because they want to have a great life or they have a family too and they don't want to be an absentee parent, which some corporate careers require. Um, it, it's just growing so much, this desire to have a balanced life. And I think there is a stigma if you don't want to raise venture capital and create the traditional scalable business. It, it, I think there are going to be some people that will write you off as not being ambitious enough, but I come across many, many entrepreneurs who are bootstrapping who are extremely ambitious, but they would like to retain control of the vision behind their business and they don't like what they see in the venture capital firms. It, it's very profit-driven. You know, and, and profit is really important if you're in business. You can't ignore that. But for some businesses, they would rather grow slow and be able to focus on other things that are important, like giving back to the community. It's not profit at all costs. And I, I just think we're seeing more of a pushback against that model because it doesn't always bring a lot of good in the long run. It You know, it's brought us some big winners and some very inspiring, exciting businesses, but I think sometimes the, the values of the people that started the business can get lost. Definitely. And, and, and I think some people are just saying no to that. And the other thing is ambition doesn't always have to do with how much money you make. It could have to do with the, what you contribute. It could have to do with the quality of the work that you do. Exactly. Maybe for, for you, ambitious is, is doing award-winning work or creating an award-winning workplace. Maybe you work with contractors and you are the, you treat contractors better than anyone on the planet. I mean, it, it, it's, some, it's something people have to define for themselves. And I think if you run a high-revenue one-person business, you have the option of doing it indefinitely. The reason, by the way, that I focused on the million-dollar one-person businesses is because I think a lot of people that get into business really aren't business people. It's something that they learn to do because they have to, to do what they love. But if you run a marginal freelance business where you're just kind of squeaking by or not paying attention to what you're earning or you're unprofitable, you're going to have to close eventually unless someone else is subsidizing this for you and it's more of a hobby. Yes. And, and, and you're going to have to give up on what you love because you're always going to be stressed about money. There, there's a certain baseline you need to get to and it's different for each person, depending on what, what your bills are and what your desired lifestyle is and where you live, et cetera. 
but if you if you if once you know what you need to make and you focus on that, then you can really do so much more with the business plus reinvest in it. And and as you scale, if you want to bring on expert advisors or contractors or automate things or invest in software, the things that people in this book have done to grow, you'll have the money available to do it, which you will not have. You'll just be doing everything yourself constantly if, you, if you're running a marginal freelance business. You are so right. And that's why I loved that um, Vern Hunish did your forward because I read his book this year, Scaling Up, and it completely changed the way I looked, in business, looked at business you know, focusing on that, you know, do you have a lead generation method? Do you have a way to convert those leads before you can even go on to the next stage in your business? And it it segues really nicely into um, my next question, because the 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 statistics are quite shocking. Um, about 30% of businesses in the US are owned by women, but only 2% break the $1 million revenue mark. And those owned by men are 3.5 times as likely to reach that million dollar threshold. What, what do you think the disparity is? I think it's access to capital. Um, I, I think that to scale to a certain point in certain fields, you may need employees. Not, not every business is the same. You know, some, some businesses, for instance, might require a lot of customer service people. They are hourly workers. They usually have to be W-2 employees. And, you, and if you need 30 of them, you may need outside funding <laughs> to pay for them. And I, and I think there are just disparities. Women are doing so much better in raising capital than ever before. In fact, it, I think it was 2003 when I was at Fortune Small Business Magazine, we did a story, um, it was a roundtable where we flew in experts like venture capitalists from around the country to look at this very question, why aren't more women breaking the million dollar mark? And even though the statistics have not improved that much, it's not a story that would be very easily pitchable today because there's such a, um, a growing crop of young women who are succeeding in raising funds all different ways, including crowdsourcing, uh, uh, crowdfunding rather, um, and you know, various other types of things that they're doing, plus Silicon Valley and all the other pockets of venture capital. And once you have that kind of funding, it it is easier to get your revenues that high. Um, I think part of the reason some women don't reach that level is because it's not a goal for them at the moment. It might be a goal when their kids are in school all day or that sort of thing, but it isn't a goal at the moment, and we don't know uh, over the lifetime what they will accomplish with the business. We know where they are right now. Very um, true. And there's also social stuff going on. I think traditionally in most societies, men are judged more on their status as a breadwinner and how much they earn in their career, and there's a little bit less social pressure on women to do that. So it might be that some men feel a pressure to um, reach higher revenue levels then women with the similar capabilities that they have might feel. I, I don't know about that, but, but you know, there's so many factors as to why people earn more, whether in a job or a business. Um, but, I, but I think the, the, your point about entrepreneurship education earlier is an important one, too. I think the more we educate women that this is an option, the more we'll see women breaking the million-dollar mark. Definitely. And thanks to book, books like yours, I'm sure that I'm sure that we'll start seeing more of that. Because one of the 
what I loved about the the book was that you showed that that business model kind of applies across the board and in different industries. But one of the things that I noticed was that many of the founders were strategic in their business ideas. So they started companies in an area that they already knew well, whether that's in a field that they previously worked in or as a hobby. So do you think that's one of the key ingredients in making that million dollar one person business model work? I think it shortens the runway to success if you know a business that you're going into, it's just a matter of, of, of figuring out which things you know can be a profitable business. So um, the couple that I mentioned earlier, Camille and Ben Arneberg, their running interest didn't really translate into a good business for them, but their interest in home entertaining did. Um, and Camille and I had an interesting conversation when I was fact checking the book and she said, you know, I, she's also a photographer. They're very multi-talented people. And, 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 and she loves painting. And she said, you know, I love painting, but that's something I prefer to keep for myself, you know, just something private. It's not something I want to motivate other people to do. It's just something I enjoy. And, and I think there might be some experimenting needed to figure out, okay, which of the several things I'm most interested in would translate well to a business because you could also ruin something that you love that is by turning true. it into a business. <laughs> like I, I love going to yoga, but I wouldn't want to create a yoga business because then it wouldn't be relaxing for me. It would be work, <laughs> you know, and other people feel like I want to quit my job and become a yoga instructor. This is my dream. And, and for them, that's perfect. You know, it's, it's a matter of who you are and, and knowing what you want. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's funny because, yes, yeah, sometimes when you turn your passion into something that keeps the lights on, it can change your relationship with, with that hobby. I think, I think you're right. I, one of the things that um, I think was interesting was people sometimes went back a few jobs in terms of the experience they tapped into. Um, so there was one father who started, he was working in, um, the real estate world during the global financial collapse. And he sort of saw the writing on the wall and he knew he needed to do something. And he started these two related businesses that sell things like police bicycles and riot gear to police departments. And he, he had a sales background working with this type of client in the past but hadn't been doing it recently. And so he hearkened back to that and he created two very successful businesses that are still going strong in Chico, California. Um, so I think it, it may be that the things that you learned 10 years ago can help you start a business. Maybe they've been dormant for a while, but it doesn't mean that you can't mine that experience. But, you, but I, what I would say is to do some small experiments. You don't want to you know, sell your house and invest every penny in something that's a new business idea without testing it out. And it's so easy to test things. Like if you want to try e-commerce, try selling one product on Amazon. There is some setup to it, but it's fairly low risk. Um, you know, it's, it, instead of trying to open like a whole brick and mortar retail store in your town, because you might not like what you think you like, that's the other side of it. And then you'll be trapped because you spent all of your money on it and you've, you know, maybe your family is counting on it for an income. <laughs> so it, I think it, we're in a beautiful time right now because it is so easy to experiment. Plus, there are a lot of great platforms to connect with customers. So if you're in professional services, um, Upwork, 
freelancer, people per hour. There are so many platforms like this. Some of them are very specialized for programmers where you can sort of float ideas out there of things you want to do and, you know, see, will people buy what I'm selling? Do I like working in this capacity? What are some of the downsides? How can I fine tune my business without giving up on what you're currently doing and, you know, until you have the security in the new business? Definitely. And I guess that's something that you constantly do, whether your business is brand new or established. And you have a section on that in the book, and all about that kind of making that feedback loop faster and faster and learning how to pivot. And for me, that's been a really steep learning curve. I think there is that that fear sometimes of putting your ideas out there and, you know, people not jumping on jumping on board but I, that's why I think what you just said was really important is testing in small increments and approaching it with a, a spirit of curiosity um, and you know and you know, almost being like a lab and just testing different hypotheses so using the feedback as just that not that you know your whole business is terrible but okay maybe <laughs> this is how yeah. this is how I can tweak things. I, I love what you just said about curiosity Naomi because I think it's really important to maintain that attitude. It's it's so easy to judge ourselves and be harsh. But if you look at it as more of an experiment, which I found a lot of these entrepreneurs do, it's just so much more of an enjoyable adventure. And yes, there is pressure to earn money. That's a reality for most people. They have to earn a living. But you can you can protect yourself from that a little bit if you know maybe you keep a side income or you drive for uber on the side or whatever it is that kind of keeps an income flowing so you have that freedom to be curious and try different things the other thing is being really honest with yourself because sometimes you can be heavily invested you know maybe you like doing one thing in your business but times have changed and maybe you can't do it as much as you once did and you have to move on to other types of work that's it's hard to let go of things you've done in the past that you like, but you you also have to be responsive to the marketplace. And I think um, this is where peers can come in sometimes is, you know, talking, having friends you can be really candid with and don't have to pretend everything is perfect in your business. Could be friends you meet at a meetup or just, you know, people from your community, people you meet online, but you, but we need those reality checks in our life <laughs> so yes. we don't we don't yes. lie to ourselves I mean I find in my business right I, I started out you know I'm in journalism it's a very evolving field and there are some like podcasts there were no podcasts <laughs> I, I don't think 15 years ago if there were they were the um, the pioneers um, you know now it's a very common way to communicate with people so if you're really not thinking about podcasts then and you're in journalism, then you're kind of missing out on a great way to communicate with people. I, I mean, if I just stuck with um, print journalism, which is what I started out, <laughs> I wouldn't have a business. And, and I, I love print journalism, and I've worked with some of the best journalists there are in print journalism. And I, I, I wish it was as strong as it once was. And it really causes me pain every year to see what's happened to it. But then I think, look at all these other things that have opened up digital journalism. and. Right you know, audio and video journalism. I mean, it's just, if you're open to the new things, you will enjoy your business so much more. You are absolutely right. Because what have, having interviewed so many, um, so many founders, both in your, in your role as a journalist, but also for this book, 
what were some of the, the systems that they've put in place that have enabled them to scale? Were there any commonalities? They do each have their own unique systems. They, um, you mentioned the scaling up system, and I, I actually am a writing collaborator of Vern Harnish, so I was happy that you mentioned <laughs> that book. Um, he has a system for scaling. It's aimed at middle market companies, but it's it's based on the four decisions that people need to make to um, grow a business, people, strategy, execution, and cash. And he has a tool called the one-page strategic plan, which can apply to a business of any size. It's online. It's a free tool. So I would urge anybody listening to it, if you have a business, to look at the one-page strategic plan. I think it will give you a lot of ideas on some of the systems to put in place. But for a micro business, I think one of the most important places to start is with accounting software. I know that's so boring, but I started out with Excel spreadsheets until I, I, I had somebody write to me. I had a check for something like five thousand dollars that I had in cash, and I didn't know that I had not received it. <laughs> and, and and I thought, well, you know, that's that's a pretty substantial mistake. Yes. And I, I, my my Excel spreadsheet method is not working. So then I converted to FreshBooks. Um, and now currently I'm using QuickBooks um, and, you know, it depends on, there are different stages your business goes through where you need different functions. But I think having that in place is really important. One thing I did in the past year that I should have done a long time ago was hire a bookkeeper because I found this is not my strong point as a writer. I, you know, I write about entrepreneurship, but I am not an accountant. And there are just some little nuances to that that are best mastered by an expert I think and so it's been such a relief to have her and when I have a question to just be able to go to her and I, I have always had accountants who are good but I um I, you know sometimes for the little questions like how do I enter this in QuickBooks you don't want to bother them yeah um so I so I think having visibility into how your business is doing financially is really important so then you can you know at the very basic level if you're trying to replace a job and you say okay I made just for a round number, I made $100,000 U.S. dollars a year in my job. Um, I probably need to make about $130,000 this year to replace the cost of benefits. I think the U.S. Labor Department had estimated it was about 30% more than your salary okay. to cover the cost of benefits. I, I think it should really be 40% more because you also need a cash cushion, which you're not going to get by just replicating the same situation you had at your job yeah. unless you were a great saver. Okay, so say you need to make 140000 Then you need to divide that up by 12 months. How much do I need to make each month to cover my expenses? And you need to subtract the taxes from that. You might have to ask an accountant to help you figure out what tax bracket you're in because if, for instance, you're married, you know, your spouse's salary might affect your tax bracket, et cetera. It's too complicated for a lot of people to figure out on their own, at least in the U.S. I, it might be better in other countries. It's just insane here. <laughs> so so then you break it up by the month, and then you think about the week. And and I think in the beginning, it can be a little nerve-wracking because you're like, oh, I've been in business two months, and I haven't made any money at all. You know, I'm going to get paid in six months. But it helps you start to think about, okay, well, you know what, I'm not, I, these people are probably going to pay me in 60 days. That's the standard for this industry. So what do I need to do to bring in cash now? Maybe I need to do some sort of quick paying freelance work that 
will keep the cash flowing. And you'll start making better decisions about building a sustainable business or how do I bring in income some other way? Maybe I take a part-time job for these first few months and wait tables or something like that or whatever it is. There's so many different things people can do nowadays. But if you don't know, that's when you get surprised and you have to close. Exactly. As scary as it can be to look at those numbers, it empowers you to make more informed decisions completely. Absolutely. You also need, I would say, get a business checking account, keep that money separate. A lot of people, when they're sole proprietors, merge everything into one bank account. It's not a good idea because you just lose track of what the you know, what you're spending in the business versus what you're spending personally. And you tend not to set aside enough for taxes and things like that. It's just, it becomes a big mess. So I would say just be very professional, get a business credit card, sync it up with your accounting system and only put your business charges on that credit card, not other credit cards too, just to keep things simple and organized. A lot of people don't have business credit, especially if they're young, it can be hard to get business credit. So do the best you can. You might have to get a secured credit card in the beginning and just use it wisely. You don't overcharge, pay it off on time, and then you'll eventually get more credit. Um, speaking of access to capital, a lot of people, I, I, I write a column on a site related to credit. Um, it's a Q&A column where readers send me questions, and they're always asking, you know, how can they get credit without giving a personal guarantee? You really can't. You know, unless it's very expensive credit and you don't really want that kind of expensive credit because it's, you know, it will hurt your profits. You might need it in a pinch, but it's best to avoid it when you can. Um, So you you have to really focus on uh, building your credit is an important asset in a business. It's, again, a very boring thing. But if you do it, it's important because you might want to do something that requires credit next year. Maybe you get a really big order. Say you make a product and all of a sudden Target or Walmart or you know, one of the big chain stores wants to order it and you need money, you're probably going to need credit. Exactly. So, so now is the time to start thinking ahead, like where am I going to be in two or three years and not put that off? Because that is the number one thing. If people, either they, they've, they've um, run up their personal credit cards to build the business and then they get behind and they have terrible credit and it takes a while to fix it or they just have no credit because they're young and they just haven't had any credit history and it's hard to fix it overnight you can't really you just have to be patient unfortunately so it's 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 good to think that way that's a little bit more of a scalable way of thinking a lot of the people in this book do not use much credit they they fund things through cash flow so that's another thing if you want to go that route then it's like okay i'm going to fund it through cash flow how do i get the cash in exactly and that and that you know that might be like you give people a discount if you if they pay you in advance there's a there's a lot of things along those lines that take time to learn to do so like if you're in professional services instead of focusing so much on one-off projects maybe you do those one-off projects to build a relationship with someone but you maybe it's better to transition to a retainer arrangement where you give them a um, a slight discount if they pay you at the beginning of the month for that month's work so you have the cash flow then you can use that money to invest in your business without having credit so I would say those systems that you know the accounting software in place um, I, th- I think you want to think about your overall goals for the business. I know in um, the scaling up system, 
It's based on annual goals and quarterly goals. And then those are sort of cascaded down through the organization to individual employees. If you're a one-person business, you don't necessarily have a big organization. So you want to think about what your goals are for your business for the year, for the month, et cetera. And then, you know, what are the key things that will move you towards those goals? That That's an important thing, too, to sort of have someone keep you accountable so that you're not getting lost in minutiae. I've been working with a wonderful Gazelle's coach, actually Doug Wick, and he's been coaching me on growing my business. And that's the one thing where he kind of holds my feet to the fire. It's like, what is the one thing you can do that will make all the other things in your business easier? And you don't necessarily need a professional coach to do this. Maybe it's just an accountability partner. It could be if you're a mother who's an entrepreneur, another mom who's running a business and you get together for coffee with your babies in tow and you, you hold each other accountable, it doesn't matter who it is as long as it's someone who's serious about growing a business too and can, and can kind of keep the pressure on you a little bit to not get distracted. Because it, 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 that's one thing. I think a, a lot of entrepreneurs have energy and yes, a lot of ideas. ideas. Yeah, yeah and, and can go spinning <laughs> off in a lot of different directions. And it's... You know, if you just if you do one big thing every week that moves the needle forward, like you win one client, one retainer client this week, and you, you, maybe you need five retainer clients to build a sustainable business, and that's your number one goal, and you accomplish it. I mean, that's a big deal, as it's, opposed to answering five hundred emails that just came into your inbox. Isn't it that that Stephen Covey that important versus urgent? Um, yes, and distinguishing I, between the must dos and the, you know it'd be nice to do. Yes, he. I, I love his system, and I think anyone who you know, he's he might be new to some people who are um, in their twenties. It's worth picking up his books because he'll really help you rethink time management. And uh, I, you know, I think time management, in a way, when you think about that, is it's also kind of it seems tedious. But if you think in terms of moving towards your life's goals, like what's really important to you instead of what you have to get done. I think that's an important thing to bring to your business to whatever system you use. But if you think about like what really matters to me and, and you can't, you can't have that many priorities at one time. So for, for me, you know, it's, it's really, I try to have a, a happy family life and a smoothly running business and have a business that grows and keep in touch with my friends and exercise <laughs> like the four things I try to do it's it doesn't sound that ambitious but I, I you know it, it's a lot for me to get done and so if I'm also trying to do empathize. like 10 other things I would never get anything done because you know with four children you can imagine how you know you, you can't just like wave at them as they go by I mean they need to have a relationship with their parent and and it doesn't go on schedule so you, you need you need to have some air in your schedule to just be a human being too exactly um, and you put the nail on the head the moment you start to break down your goals and thinking okay what can I do this quarter that's really going to push the needle in my business it becomes very easy to see the things that are essential and the things that just, you know, when if you do have surplus time, then you can get to it, but it's just not the function. So I always have actually on a whiteboard in my office, like what those three things are. So when I get tempted to go down the rabbit hole of like emails and, you know, things that are just easy things that you like to put on your to-do list only so that you could tick, tick it off, um, it stops me from doing that. 
It's good to, I, I like your system, Naomi, of having a reminder, a visual reminder, especially if you're a visual person, just seeing the goals is, is really important. And then, and revising them too. Um, the, the other thing that I noticed that a lot of the people in the book do that maybe separates them from a lot of people who never build a thriving business is they, they actually book out time to think about the business. You know, there's the old stereotype of like working in the business versus on the business. They, they, they really take time to recharge their battery, think creatively, think about how to, you know, how to move the business forward. Are they happy in the business? They kind of take their emotional temperature and it's a priority for them. I know one entrepreneur, um, he wasn't in the book, but he books time in a resort for one day every once in a while. He lives in a resort area, fortunately, you know, just to think. And I have another friend, a young entrepreneur who's in a startup, he books time in a hotel and brings all the books that he's been meaning to read about business. He's a big reader, um, which I like to hear as an author. Um, and and he, he just immerses himself in new ideas. I think that's really important. And however you do it is dependent on your personality. Some people going to events and just, you know, going to a conference with great speakers might be what helps you to think about the bigger picture for your business, for other people, you know, it, it, it might be like meeting with a business coach or it might be just doing yoga or <laughs> whatever it is that clears your mind. I, I think it is important also not to work a hundred hours a week. I mean, I've, I've talked to so many very successful entrepreneurs in scalable businesses who have regrets that they missed like the first 10 years of their children's lives. <laughs> and, yeah. and you can't get that back, unfortunately. We, none of us, I, I don't mean to be morbid, but none of us knows how long we're going to live, right? So you have to think about, am I living every day as I would if, if you know, I, I might die tomorrow? I mean, you, you, we don't want to think that way, but we kind of have to because otherwise it's easy to be like, oh, I need to get on that plane and go to that one more meeting because it would be nice to meet this person instead of seeing your family or, or seeing a friend or doing something that's really meaningful, you, you know, coaching so someone right. that you want to work with. It, you know, it, it, it's hard to think that way because, you know, we get caught up in the day-to-day -day and it, I, I don't want to make it sound like I'm so high-minded, but, but it, um, it, it's really, really important to think that way every once in a while and then do it and, and, and readjust things. If you've been making a mistake and you're not happy and you're feeling internal emotional pain because of how you're living, try not to suppress that. Listen to it and think about why am I feeling that way? I, um, I find that sometimes when I talk to corporate people, you know, they have a lot of um, health problems. They're really just caused by stress because they have a two-hour commute because of the traffic and their job is stressful and they're going through a merger and they, they're no longer able to do the work that they like. They're in meetings all day. They get no exercise. There's crappy food in the cafeteria. I mean, there's like a whole list of horrible <laughs> things that, about their death and they're, they're unhappy. And that might be, if you're feeling that way, instead of saying, oh, you know, this is just the way life is, maybe you make an adjustment. Uh, by the same token, there are other people that I have friends that are, 
women who are corporate stars and they would be so unhappy outside of that environment. They just thrive in, in these giant teams or you know, now at this stage of their career, they're leading these giant teams in a global team. And you know, if you feel good and you're going in and you're excited and pumped up and it's working for you, then, then don't change it. And same with the business. You have to, but it's really um, learning to listen to what you feel and not what other people think you should be doing or what you think they think you should be doing. Yes. Yes, it's so true. I was listening to a podcast um, episode of James Wedmore and he says that, that, you know, as entrepreneurs very often, taking that white space that you mentioned, having time for self-care can feel, you know, indulgent. But actually, our, you know, the amount that we're able to take on, not that I'm encouraging taking on the world, but there's a direct correlation with how much time we give to you know take care of ourselves and he uses the example of when he started his career um his business he only had you know a few different um digital products offerings and you know he was struggling at that point because he hadn't started these kind of rituals of self-care now he has you know 10 times the amount of of um, services that he offers but he's able to do that and in a really aligned intentional way because it's you know he makes so much time to have those white space to have space to dream and look at where the market is going and see what the opportunities are and just take time to look after themselves and I think we many of us know that intellectually but putting that into practice is is completely different which is actually (laughs) sorry go ahead we don't do that it's funny because Laszlo Nadler when you're telling me that story was making me think of of how he runs his life and he, he he loves being involved with his kids and every Friday is daddy daughter day and he runs a $2 million one person business. Wow. Right. And you think this man is busy, <laughs> but he makes that time and it really recharges him. And he, it's not a business oriented thing. He's just having fun with his daughter, but it, it, it's important to him. And I think it can take many forms, but it, part of it is scheduling it. Like he's a time management guy, right? So he <laughs> schedules that and he doesn't book phone calls during that time. And he, you know, he, he plans what he's going to do during that time. And I, I found for me too, as a, you know, as a busy working mom, I, one of the changes I made in the past year is I started going to hot yoga and it's a bit of a commitment because the class is an hour and 15 minutes and I have to drive about 15 minutes to get there. So it's maybe like an hour and 45. Like you can tell I'm a working mother because I've gotten it down to that quarterly. But, but, but it's so hard. It's so hot in there. It's like 100 degrees. And it, the workout is so hard. I cannot think about anything else. I cannot meditate. I, I really admire people who can. I've never succeeded in meditating for even a single minute. So I, I, I have hopes of it, but I'm not there yet. But when I come back, all of a sudden, that list of like 25 things on my to-do list, I realized there was just one thing I need to get done, and then I'll have had a productive day. And that is such an amazing gift. And then I do have the time to do the things with my kids and do other things. But I, I lose all perspective if I just sit at my desk grinding away. And so I, I, I think putting it in my calendar, I put it in a week ahead of time so I can't back out of it helps a lot so if anyone's having trouble and I know I I don't want to make mothers or fathers with very young children feel bad if they're not doing it it is so hard to get time away when you have very small children or if you have an elderly parent that you're taking care of so don't beat yourself up if you can't manage it but if you can even take 
a half an hour every weekend or one hour every weekend by trading off with someone else, just that alone would be a priceless gift. Just put it in your calendar. Somehow make that happen. You would, you'll be miles ahead of where you were last year. What would you say to entrepreneurs right now who are at capacity, are doing everything, um, but they're afraid of delegating because, one, they're afraid of letting go of certain things, but they're also worried about cash flow. They're like, okay, I've reached capacity. I couldn't possibly take on any more, but where does that money now come from to bring to, to start outsourcing? Well, you could start with um, using... Um, software as a service, okay. automating things. There are, um, in fact, somebody just told me about um, a, a bookkeeping service that used AI. I haven't tried it myself, so I don't oh, know wow. how how um, good or bad it is. I, it sounds like a great idea to me. But but if you're not comfortable with delegating to people, try delegating to a technology or use an outsourced services firm. I, there there are in some fields. Um, there's one fellow in the book, Harry Ein, who sells swag, like, uh, you know, tote bags with the company's name on it or a mug or that sort of thing to corporate clients. And he outsources certain things like order fulfillment to a specialized firm in his industry that does back office support for firms like his. And they have, you know, they do invoicing for him and things like that. And he's been very comfortable with that. So a, a formal service that sort of has it down and does it for many people might be a good idea um, looking for like it like maybe you're not ready to hire a bookkeeper because it does cost me some money to do that and I wasn't always in a position where I could do it first you know really learn your QuickBooks or your FreshBooks or whatever accounting software you use and and attach some apps that automate things like your mileage tracker try start looking for things like that first and then when you've really exhausted those I mean those alone could could give you back almost a full day every week. Like I use a tool called schedule once, which is a link that I send to people that shows them my public calendar yes, and they can pick that. a time a lot. Yeah. I notice a lot of podcasts are doing it because you set up a lot of appointments and it's easy to lose track and put them in the wrong time zone or whatever it is and waste time. Plus emailing back and forth takes time. That saves me a good two to three hours a week alone. So there's a half a day and that thing costs me less than a hundred dollars a year. And there's even some free versions of it um, made by other companies. I think there might even be a free version of schedule once I'm not certain, but, but I have a mileage tracker just writing down all that mileage in my car is such a pain in the neck. And, and so I found a mileage tracker that works on my iPhone and now it catches all kinds of mileage. I didn't even know I was driving. You know? <laughs> so it, it's saving me money on my taxes and I can attach it to my QuickBooks. So if you look for those first, that'll help you get over the, like this fear of not doing everything yourself Yeah. and then start small, you know, just maybe, maybe you get a virtual assistant for two hours a week, see how it goes. If you don't, feel comfortable with that person then stop the arrangement you know you don't don't lock yourself into something that you don't want to do I would say the number one thing anybody should do if they're a total do-it-yourself is get a good accountant because in terms of of what you actually take home from the business if you're not a professional accountant keeping up on tax laws and everything else you're going to miss things Yes. And you're not going to be efficient. You're going to have to learn so much to complete the tax return correctly. Find somebody good and 
make that the first person you delegate to. I agree. There's nothing that gives you nightmares more than getting scary tax emails. Oh, <laughs> I know. I know. Yeah. And it's like, you know, why, why live with that stress? I, I would say the second type of person you might need is a lawyer. Um, I don't think you would need this all the time in most businesses, but if you need like a standard contract for your clients and you're growing, a lot of times you can use boilerplate um, contracts that are available from various services online. But sometimes things need to be customized a little bit more when you're talking about larger amounts of money or something legally sensitive. Find someone good that you can use so that you're not winging it and worried. Those are the two that they're, they're not commitments that you need to pay for constantly. That's they're, really they're you know, advice. occasional types of things. I mean, with an accountant, if you're growing a lot, you might need somebody on retainer. But but most people in a one-person business aren't at that stage yet. You would be maybe at the stage of the people in the um, the book that I wrote because they're now getting you know above seven-figure revenue. So there's more complicated things that you might need help with. Um, those things are good. I would say a financial planner would not be a good. Uh, a bad investment for a lot of people. I just started working with a financial planner this year. It was the first year I felt like I really had the bandwidth to afford it. And I felt like I needed to make some decisions about, you know, college education and things like that for my kids. And I just didn't have the time to work on it. And I didn't have the personal passion for learning about investing and I wasn't doing too much. So that was just in my personal life, it gave me a better handle on where I am and how much I need to make in my business to maintain my lifestyle and my personal goals for my family. So that, that can be helpful too. You touched um, on something really great there. Sometimes if you don't have the bandwidth, or you, you, you know, you have no interest in just even learning it. That, those are some of the things to outsource. But I know there are also going to be some women who, you know, they've experienced um, rapid growth in the first few years of their business based on the expertise that they started their business with. Um, but then they get to that point where they hit a ceiling and things just stagnate. So they're not doing badly, but they're not growing. Um, and I can imagine that that would that could be a challenge um, in one-person businesses because it's kind of running off the expertise on of the founder. Um, what would you suggest for for people listening who are in situations like that? How can they? Should they be up leveling their personal skills? Should they be tapping into mentors or you know getting a kind of informal board of advisors? What What would you suggest? Well, I, I don't know if you need a board of advisors, but it is good to have some mentors. One, one area where I think a lot of um, one-person businesses have room for growth is making sure they're pricing their services accordingly. Okay. It might be that you're not um, charging for the value that you provide. And maybe you've grown professionally since you started the business, so maybe you could charge $35 USD an, an hour five years ago, but now you, you what you provide is worth $100 an hour. You may not have adjusted your prices accordingly, and maybe you need to grandfather in a new rate, um, you know, as, keep the old people on the existing rate, and then as you add new clients, start raising your rates and test out a new rate. That's one way you can quickly increase your, your revenue is by charging more, um, and sometimes by pairing away very unprofitable clients. Okay. You, I, I think when you when you just start out, you might be so happy to have any business at all that, <laughs> that that you're like, oh, it doesn't matter if they pay me in nine months. But it's like, yes, it does matter because you're wasting time 
chasing them down to get paid. It's causing you stress. And maybe now that you have other clients who treat you with respect, then you should gently phase out those original clients who are not serving the business well anymore. But you might also need to hire contractors, which is, I think, kind of where you were going with this. Sometimes you just reach your max and you're going to stagnate usually between 250000 500,000 US dollars. That's why um, a lot of the programs to help women grow their business um, tend to focus on getting them to a million because it's like those, the mid to high six figures, there are people that can get there pretty easily on their own horsepower, basically. <laughs> you know? yeah. But but you need other people. So then, then you know, you I think think about what you're, what you're not interested in doing. Like with me, it was, you know, bookkeeping. I just, I could go take a QuickBooks course and I keep threatening to do it, but I never really want to. <laughs> I don't want to spend the whole day doing it because I feel like someone else will always be better at it yeah. than me. I've just never, you know, my husband is very meticulous about balancing the bank accounts and things. He loves that. He's very mathematical. I wish I was like that. I'm just not like that. I'm a writer and I love writing and I'm very nitpicky about grammar and things like that. But I, I am, you know, so you have to sort of know your strengths and and figure out what have you been putting off. You know, my, uh, one of my friends is a uh, journalist who specializes in investing. She's like, oh, Elaine, you can do that. You know, do your personal financial planning yourself. And I said, I can, but all these years have passed and I've never done it. So I yeah, think at this point, the writing is on the wall. <laughs> you know, I said, I've got to get someone to help me with it. Um, I would say administrative work is the first thing you want to offload. Like you, you shouldn't really be doing a lot of basic administrative work or a lot of customer service yourself after a certain point because you won't grow. You'll just be lost in minutiae. You just need somebody trusted. It doesn't have to be a a full-time employee or full-time contractor. It can be someone who just works a few hours a week. There are lots of people that have virtual assistant businesses in all different areas, it could be like maintaining the shopping cart on your e-commerce site. They have so many specialties or marketing. Um, another thing that's good to outsource if you're not proficient in it is social media. Um, that's something that takes a lot of time. And if you get a good social media person to do it for you, then you don't have to worry that you're neglecting all these pages you put up. Other people love it. They love to interact directly with people on social media. They just have a fun voice. They enjoy it. So if you love that, then then keep doing it if it's energizing you. But you have to, um, when, you, when you reach that breaking point, you just got to think, okay, what am I willing to give up? What would I like be so happy to have someone else do if I could trust them? <laughs> and then you you may have to try a few people. That's the other thing. Just because you try someone, they don't deliver it doesn't mean all people in that discipline are bad. So you have to, uh, that's one thing I've kind of learned from more experienced entrepreneurs is they do try some people that don't work out and you don't want to try somebody like to do your taxes on the day before taxes are due if you've never worked with them, because what if they are late, you know, then yeah. you're really in a, in a pickle, but you try, you try working with them on something small a few months ahead of time. Is there a so way tax to factor, is there a way to factor, that in when you're kind of making your calculations for your rates because I know that you're saying about you know 140,000 if your salary you want your salary to be 100,000 and then kind of working backwards how can you budget in you know the fact that yeah to take my business to the next level this year I can foresee that I'm going to need this person this person and this person so and then working back to that so that you're adding that buffer revenue in your business so you have that resource to do that 
you'd have to do sort of a monthly cash flow plan. There are a lot of cash flow tools okay. that are out there um, that try to simplify this for people. Sometimes it, it, it should go into, um, in the U.S., we have something um, called small business development centers. I'm sure in other countries there are sort of government-run entities where you can go get free business advice on sort of the basics of running a business. There are people there that can help okay. do calculations so you do the math correctly. But I would say start small because a lot of times you might have unexpected expenses. So if you, you're in a rhythm where like you pay your, you know, you know, you want to add an accountant, uh, an accountant or a bookkeeper or something, and it's going to cost this amount per month. And you also want to raise your prices, but you're not sure if people are going to go for the new pricing. You, there's going to have to be some wiggle room in this. And so you, you, you need to experiment a little bit. And I would say go somewhat conservatively. And, 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 and if things are not working, then quickly regroup. Um, there's, not, there's not a simple formula for this. It's like, you know, it's sort of a mathematical thing where yeah. you've got to figure out. And, and the thing is, there's also things that are unplanned. Like if you run a professional services business, like I do ghostwriting of books, those projects, there's not really a set rhythm when they come in. Yeah. And there's a certain number that I can handle at any time. They're in different stages of the writing and editing process. Um, there are other things I do that are recurring. So you need to sort of think about, okay, what is the recurring work I have, the base? And then what are these sort of um, occasional projects? And you need to factor that all in. And how much does of my revenue does each of these types of things bring in? Some people only sell one thing, so it's a little simpler. <laughs> but but I think there, are, I, I noticed there are a lot of people that I interviewed for this book that have a kind of portfolio business where they have more than one thing yeah. going at a time. Um, so I, th I would say this is something where it, it would be worth it even to pay for an hour with your accountant to sit down and try to figure it out. And then if you, you know, and revise it every quarter based on what you're learning, especially if it's a new business, because you could, the first year or two is a learning curve. And then after that, I noticed that in my business, then I, I had a big growth um, in revenue and then I kind of stayed there for two years. And then I had another big leap because I would learn something new that was valuable. And it takes time. For, like you, you can learn things intellectually, but for them to really sink in, you know, at the yes. point that you act on them, it's hard. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's like sometimes I just, you know, you just know things like I need to charge more for this. But you're like, oh, I shouldn't, you know, I, I don't think anyone will pay that much. But you have to charge what the work is worth. And I think good clients will, they don't want you to overcharge them, but they want to be prioritized. And if you're so overloaded doing 50 projects to just scramble up enough money to live, then you can't give them attention. So you need to charge them enough that you can give them your top priority. That's such sound advice. Thank you so much. This has been so helpful. One final question before we wrap up. I know that you spoke to Eric Scott a while ago and you mentioned it in the book that um, you were, you were talking about how long it will be until a one person business gets acquired for 1 billion. So how close do you think we are? <laughs> I love that question. I don't know. You know, if you told me it was going to be next year, I believe you. And if you told me it was going to be in 50 years, I believe you. I think, I think that there's so much brilliance in this space. I mean, some of the people that I interviewed are so inventive and constantly looking for ways to expand what one person can do that nothing would surprise me. 
Um, I hope, I hope it is next year actually, <laughs> but they'd have to create something really valuable. Um, but th- that's one of the greatest things today. There are so few barriers to entry to starting a business and a lot of tools that used to be very expensive, like servers, we, we now have the cloud. So it's very possible for things to happen in gigantic leaps. And so I hope that Eric is right about that. And, and I, I believe he is right about it. It's just a question of, of how soon. Um, so if I hear of anyone who, who does, you'll be the first to know about it. <laughs> oh, you'll probably read it in the headlines. Yes. Okay. So I'm going to put all of the information of the book in the show notes so everyone go out and grab it. How else can people connect with you? Where, where's, where's the best places? Well, if they would like to um, correspond with me, I have an active Twitter page. Um, it's under my name, Elaine Pofeld, and you have the spelling in the show notes. I won't phonetically yes. spell it. It's one of those names that's a mouthful. <laughs> at, at Elaine Pofeld. There's a website for the book, the million dollar one person business dot com, which is um, all spelled out, no numbers in it. Or my website, ElainePofeld dot com. There's a um, a box where they can send me messages and I do reply. I love I love hearing from entrepreneurs. It it really inspires me to keep writing when I hear people's stories and what they're doing. And I, I have met such wonderful people around the world from people who wrote into my website. We're on LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn also. They can connect with me that way. Um, and I, I will if you read the book, I would love to get your feedback. Elaine, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Oh, Naomi, it's been great. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much.